And the subject I want to explore tonight is about knowing Jesus better and delighting in the fear of the Lord. Paul mentioned earlier when he was praying that God wants his church and his people to impact the community in Indiana. For Jesus to be revealed. We're asking for the revelation of Jesus in the hearts of people. Because if the Holy Spirit doesn't do that, you can preach until you're blue in the face. You can fast until all the meat falls off of your bones and they're not going to see. The Holy Spirit has to be the revealer of Jesus. And we have to be the carrier of something as a people that actually reveals Jesus to others. That's what this is about. Isaiah chapter 11. This is speaking of the Messiah, Jesus. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Israel had been cut down for 600 years since the Babylonian captivity and basically not operated fully as the nation. And here comes the Messiah after all that time sprouting up out of, after, out of a stump that had been cut off 600 years ago. He sprouts. Here comes the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord. Verse 2. This is the characteristic of the Messiah, which means... Messiah, which means anointed one. Exactly right. Christ, Christos, anointed one. Messiah, Mashiach in Hebrew, anointed one. The characteristic of the Son of God is that he was heavily anointed by the Holy Spirit. That's his character. Verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. This is a sevenfold spirit. So you know what the menorah looks like, right? The lampstand. It has seven candlesticks. There's one in the middle and three on each side. This is the sevenfold spirit of God. This is what the book of Revelation refers to when it talks about the seven spirits of God that have gone out into all the earth. At least four times in the book of Revelation, it speaks of the seven spirits of God going out. This is what they are right here. This is the fullness of of the Holy Spirit's ministry in the life of the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and strength. The Spirit of knowledge. And notice the last one, the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. Question. If you don't have the Spirit of wisdom, do you have the fullness of the Holy Spirit? If you don't have the spirit of understanding, do you have the fullness of the Holy Spirit? If you don't have the spirit of counsel and strength, do you have the fullness of the Holy Spirit? If you don't have the spirit of the fear of the Lord, do you have the fullness of the Holy Spirit? No. We're spirit-filled people, but do we carry the spirit, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, which is the fear of the Lord? We have to ask the question. The dominant characteristic of the Messiah is that his life is consumed with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The fear of the Lord is the part of the Holy is part of the Holy Spirit's fullness, and without it, we don't have his fullness. Look at verse three. This is so remarkable to me. It says, "And he will delight in the fear of the Lord." 
Do you delight in the fear of the Lord, or does it feel a little bit awkward and edgy? You know, the Hebrew word here for delight is really interesting, and it gives the concept better. It's actually the Hebrew word for smelling. And here's the picture. Have you ever walked into a room or a restaurant, and you just go, oh, that smells so good. It smells so good. That's what Jesus says about the fear of the Lord. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. He delights in the fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? I want to give you a definition that you can run with and see if you think it's biblical. Okay? The fear of the Lord is being gripped by God's perfect light, which is his holiness, in such a way that it compels repentance, worship, overwhelmed awe, and full surrender of our lives. It's being gripped by God's holiness, by his perfect light, in such a way that it compels repentance, worship, overwhelmed awe, and full surrender, obedience. 1 John 1, 5. This is the message that we receive from him and have delivered to you, that God is you want to say God is love, right? That's the second part. The first part is God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. And then he goes on in verse 6 to talk about fellowshipping with God. We're inviting you into the fellowship that we have with God. But here's the thing. Since God is perfect light, if we're not abiding and walking in the light, we're not really in fellowship with him. We're plowing a little bit going here. This is a real thing. We need as the people of God, I know we seek after experiences and exciting encounters with God, and I'm with you. I'm not throwing that down at all. I've had some exciting encounters with the Lord that have changed my life. But what about knowing Jesus and carrying the fullness of the Holy Spirit in our lives? without carrying the fullness of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and as a people, as a community, we, we tend to want to pick and choose aspects of God's character that we're going to magnify and ignore the others. And we can't do that. John's theology is really simple in 1 John. Here, here's the two things he says about God, absolute, about his character. God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. And then in chapter 4, God is love. We know the chapter 4 part, which is great. But I don't believe that we actually have had a really full experience of either of those things. It's very partial because I think they go together. Until we realize that God is light and his perfect holiness, and we realize our lack of perfect holiness, then we can't grasp the greatness of his love. That he would reach down. And, you know, do, do, do we have a sense of our own depravity and darkness when Jesus rescued us. I mean, some of us do have a little bit of a sense of it, but we don't see all of it. I mean, the Lord rescued me outside of church, and I praise God forever for that because, no, I'm, I'm serious. I, I didn't get um, brainwashed or taught by the church culture, so that was helpful for me in some sense. But I will tell you, I was so twisted and so dark and so black 
in, as a 15-year-old boy, you would have looked at me and go, oh, God, feel sorry for him. He's like a bird with a broken wing. You need to rescue him. I was broken, but inside I was full of darkness. And the Lord began to clean me up. As I cried out to him, he began to clean me up and change me on the inside and change what I wanted and change what I desired. That change, his light was beginning to come into me. It was breaking up the stronghold that darkness had inside of me. And I cried so much, I broke blood vessels under my eyes and had black eyes multiple times from crying so hard. That's really true. One time in a service at the church when I finally got to it after a year and a half, I had a, an appointment with the cardiologist the next Monday. This was a Sunday night. And we were praying around the altar at the end of the service. And I was crying so hard. You ever cry so hard you're just heaving and you can't stop? I was crying like that. Not because of anything bad, but the presence of the Lord was there. And my heart was breaking up. And the hardness and the darkness was coming out of me. And he was changing me. And I was weeping so hard. I cried so hard. Literally, when I left that place, my eyes, both of my eyes were black. Like you'd punch me in the face. Because I broke blood vessels under my eyes. I cried so hard. That's happened to me a few different times. Well, I had, I was a tennis player in high school. And so when I went to get my physical in high school, they checked my heart, do a physical like they do. And they said, oh, you have a heart murmur. I said, oh, really? I didn't know that. They said, well, you have to go to a cardi cardiologist or you can't play. He's got to, you know, approve you to be able to play. And so after that night was my appointment with the cardiologist the next day. And I've got two shiners. And I went in there, and he checks me out, and he says, um, why did they send you here? He said, there's nothing wrong with your heart at all. And he was a Jewish doctor. It was Goldstein or something like that. And um, he said, and what happened to your eyes? He's, he's fishing to see if my parents beat me up, um, which, which they didn't. What happened to your eyes? I said, oh, I, I was crying really hard. So, and he said, what were you crying about? And I looked at him and I said, Jesus. I said, but it was good crying. And he said, oh. <laughs> the darkness coming out, so beautiful. The spirit of the fear of the Lord, when the light enters in, it drives out all that is dark. How many love the baptism in the Holy Spirit? You love it? Okay. Let's look at it for just a minute in Luke chapter 3. Because I want to show you an aspect of the baptism in the Holy Spirit that we don't think about too much. This is Luke. This is John the Baptist preaching about the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Luke 3, verse 15. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation and were all wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them all, as for me, I baptize you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to untie the thongs of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor, 
and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And I love this in verse 18. And so with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. The winnowing fork and the fire, that was part of the good news. He's preaching the good news. So for unbelievers, that's not good news. But the good news is you can come and get baptized in the Holy Spirit and fire. That's one baptism. It's not two. It's one baptism with two components. You're baptized in the Holy Spirit and fire. And what fire? what is that fire doing in this passage of Scripture? What's it doing? Is it making us go, fire! Come on, brother, come on! Is that what it's doing? What's it doing? It's burning chaff. And the beauty of the baptism in the Holy Spirit that we don't talk about very much because it's not a good seller is that the Holy Spirit begins to burn the chaff in our lives of all that junk that clogs us up and keeps the Lord from having free flow in our lives. He begins to burn it. That's what the fire's for. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for every single time that the Lord has convicted me of my sins. I'm so thankful for every time where he's revealed to me that I've been a hypocrite. I'm so grateful when he began to purge out of me the spiritual pride that was so, so awful, and I was blind to it. I remember a season in my life where I came out of a church situation where I was on staff there, and everybody was saying, you're the most godly person that we know, you and your wife, and the most godly couple that we've ever met. And then when we left there, we, we felt like we were supposed to leave and go home to disciple our kids, and we did home church for 20 years. But when we left there, the same ones that were saying Hosanna started shouting, crucify. Now you have a demon. And that tweaked me so bad, I became so defensive, and I wanted to get on the phone and correct every lie that was being told about me. And the Lord was like, you know what that is? That's your spiritual pride. You have to defend yourself and your reputation. And he said to me, let me tell you something. I don't care about your reputation. I care about your soul. And so these things are getting revealed so that you can actually get that junk out of you. And he began to deal with me on lots of things that were beautiful. We thought we were the spiritual elite, the green beret. Ever feel like that? We're the ones who pray. We get it done. We seek after God. We fast. We meditate on the scripture. We go after God with passion in our worship. We do that's what that was us. Like we're we're the faithful. We're the green beret. We're the ones who go after it. And he spoke to me one day when I was kneeling where I knelt beside the chair in the living room praying. He's down on my knees. And, and you know, sometimes the Holy Spirit speaks to you with impressions, and sometimes he speaks words. Because he doesn't want you to not understand. He spoke words to me. And he said, I have people in my every part of my body that love me more than you do. I was like, I would have done lip service to that, but like, that hurt when you said that. He said, no, you're, you're not everything that you think. There's image there that isn't really real. 
and in his mercy, the light comes to show what's really real. That's merciful. Like Paul mentioned today, how much better is it to get those things revealed and out now? If we carry the spirit of the fear of the Lord, then the light comes and shines in us and shows us what we really are so that we can change. The church in Sardis in Revelation chapter 3. I know your works. That you have a name that you're alive. We're on fire. But you're dead. Repent, therefore. You've got an image if you're like me, I've run in charismatic circles for 47 years. If you're like me, it's really easy to get an image of something and to learn the language and to say the right things. But never to let the Lord really search and examine us to see if that's really even real. Is that really real? Or are we just putting out the lingo there? We've read the books. We know how to say it. We've been to the conferences. We know how we're supposed to do it and all the undulations that we have. But is it really substantive and real inside of us? The spirit of the fear of the Lord is essential for us to let the light come in and show what's really real about us. Because if we want to have God move through us and impact the community, which we do and we should, we're not talking about perfection here. We're talking about direction, okay? So, but we have to be moving in the right direction. And a spirit of honesty is absolutely essential for being shaped into the character of Jesus. We cannot play and pretend. We like to pretend with each other. We, so let me ask you a question. Is there anything that you want people to believe about you that isn't true? So if you kept a log of your prayer life, would you be good with putting that up on the screen? If you kept a log of everything that you watched for the last month, would you be good putting that up on the screen for everybody to see it? This is what the spirit of the fear of the Lord does. Jesus delighted. Like he didn't just tolerate it. For us, I think we talk about the fear of the Lord and we kind of tolerate it. But Jesus delighted in it. He thought it was beautiful. How do you do that? How do you love the perfect light of God that is so penetrating that there is no shadow in it and nothing hides from it? We should love it as the people of God. You know why? This is how we make progress is actually to be honest and to own who we are and what we actually carry and what is real in us and what is not real, what is fake. I can say from my experience in my own life, this absolutely has happened. And that's why I got so mad when the people that were saying Hosanna were starting to say crucify. Inside of me, it rose up like, what are you talking about? You know I'm the most godly person that you've met. What are you talking about? Now I've got a demon. And it tweaked me. And the Lord did that on purpose for my own good to deliver me 
from the spiritual pride that blinded my life and kept me from becoming what he wanted me to be. It's like a big clog in the pipe that keeps the flow of God from flowing into us and through us. Everything in us that's not real, that's an illusion and an image, is actually a blockage to the flow of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit comes as perfect and pure light, and He does reveal things. And it can be terrifying to actually see what what you really are. But this is what we're talking about with revival. That's why every revival that I know of, and I've been a student of revival history for a long time, has begun just like it did here with honest repentance. And even things that we weren't aware of what the Lord showed us. Like we should be willing to be examined by him. This is not a beat down. For God's people, his light doesn't come to shame us. It comes to transform us. So good. So, do you want to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and fire? And let it purge. The fear of the Lord is emphasized in Isaiah 11 twice. Breathe it in. That's so good. Lord, it's so good. I invite the spirit of the fear of the Lord invites the light of God to come and invade every part of who we are. That's what it does. Transparent people are good carriers of the power of the Holy Spirit. Honest hearts are the soil that the word produces fruit in. The parable of the sower. These are the ones who produce the fruit. Those who have a good and honest heart produce fruit with what? Perseverance. It takes time. It's hard. Keep moving. Keep seeking. Keep pressing for the Lord. That's where fruit is born. We were super impatient. I talked to lots of young um, guys that are very gifted, have leadership on them. And we actually have a group that we mentor at our church as elders. We gather with like 15 of them. And I find in talking to them that one of the characteristics that I see is that they're really impatient. They're like, I've got to get going. My, my call, my whole life is wasting. I'm like, how old are you? You're really going to be okay. Like, you just keep going in that path. And I try to tell them, the Lord has a path for each of us to get us where he wants us to be. For some of us, it's like an on-ramp onto I-4, and it's like, boom. And for some of us, like me, it's back roads from Florida to New York. (laughs) Because the road is what makes us able to inherit the places that we're going. You can't get there without the road. That's what I tell these guys. You're not going to get translated and miss your road because the road is the thing itself that is shaping you to be able to fulfill the purpose of God when you get there. He knows what we need. My road was long. I've been ministering my whole life since I was 20, something like that. But I was never on paid staff at a church until I was 58 years old. But the Lord had me on a road where 
He said, I've got something for you. You want everything I have for you. He asked me this question before. Do you want everything that I have for you? And I knew when he was asking me that question, it was like, it was a loaded question. I cried. I, I literally did one time. I said, Lord, you know that I do. And he said this to me. Well, then you'll have to embrace the cross then, won't you? Because I have a path for you to go on. That's not what I would have chosen. That's not what other people said I should choose. But it's the path that he had for me. And ultimately, he has a path for all of us. And I know that we all want to get the word from the Lord like, we're going to be more anointed than all 12 apostles put together. And it's, and it's, going, to, it's going to happen in three years. And you're going to be there. And you're going to have this notoriety and all that. And that in itself, if we latch on to that, reveals something in our heart. Is this really about us or is it about Jesus? I mean, that, this is a big question that we have to ask. If our heart's desire is the heart's desire of the Father, which is this, that his son be exalted and magnified and treasured. The first prayer in the Lord's Prayer is what? Lord, let your name be hallowed. The first three prayers in the Lord's Prayer are unique and interesting because they're all commands. And so they have an imperative force like this must happen. We're asking God to make his name treasured. Lord, make your name treasured in the earth. Make your name treasured and cherished in every heart. That's the most important thing. The second most important thing is not that we get recognized for anything, but it's that his kingdom comes. Lord, what you want, what you desire, let that come. Let your rule and reign be established. And then thirdly, let your will be done. Giving God what he wants. That's our motto at Heart of the Father. The two questions that we always ask are, Lord, what do you want? And second one is, how can we best get it to you? I had a revelation reading scripture one time. Imagine that. I'm reading Revelation chapter 4 and 5, which we sing about all the time, which I love dearly. I love it. I love it all about the scrolls and the seals and about the worship and about worthy are you. And I'm reading in there at my desk worthy are you to receive glory and honor and power and might and dominion and riches forever and ever and it struck me I, I got blown away I'm sitting there at my desk and I just put my hands over my face and I started to cry and I said Lord my theology has been 180 degrees off. I have been asking you to give me those things when I should have been spending my life to get those things for you. I should have been pouring out my life so that you would get the things that you're worthy of. What have I been doing? And my theology got flipped. And I began to see everything revolves around Jesus being exalted. And when he is, amazing things happen. When he's really the center, God the Father is superbly pleased. 
He's raised him from the dead, Scripture says in Colossians 1.18, so that in everything he might come to have first place. As people of God, we can get distracted by the things of God, by the activities of God and all of that. And, and look, I'm not, I'm not throwing down at all. Please hear me. But if we do that, we're getting off center. And we're missing the point of everything. The point of everything that God does is that Jesus will be the center and be exalted. And out of that goal being established, he blesses people in waves and heals and restores and breaks the shame off and does all of those things that he does for all of us. But if we miss the main goal, then we've missed the main thing. And the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing as the people of God. The spirit of the fear of the Lord. God is perfect light. And I love this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that Paul talks about God. 1 Timothy 6, verse 11 through 16. There we go. Flee from these things, you men of God. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion forever. Amen. I like the, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus takes the three with him up onto the mountain. He says, some of you are not going to die before you see the kingdom coming in its power. Six days later, he takes them up onto the mountain, and he's changed before them. And what, what does he look like? His face is shining like the sun in its strength. His clothes turn, and it says they were flashing like lightning. Like when his glory comes out, he's all light. There's light everywhere in the book of Revelation in chapter 1. John was the one who was closest to the Lord Jesus on the earth, right? He's the one who laid his head on the breast of the Lord. And when the disciples wanted to know who was going to betray him, they said, John, ask the Lord who it is. You're tight with him. But when Jesus appears in Revelation chapter 1 as the glorified Son of God and stands there with hair as white as wool and with his eyes blazing with fire and his feet like burnished bronze. 
It was a different story. John didn't run over and hug him. He fell down like a dead man on the ground because the light was overwhelmingly awesome. Perfect light. This is what exposure to perfect light does for us, and it does do things for us. It brings us to repentance. I mentioned those things in the definition, being gripped by God's perfect light in such a way that it compels repentance. Remember Peter when Jesus said, cast the net on the other side of the boat and pull it up? And when Peter saw what happened and he saw a little glimpse of the majesty of the holiness of Jesus, what did he say? He ran up to him and said, depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Because just a little flash of that light that came out when those fish came up, he saw the darkness inside of his own soul. And he ran over to Jesus and go, I'm a sinful man. Because in the presence of perfect light, it reveals everything that's inside of us. Here's the beauty of it now, people of God. We can carry the spirit of the fear of the Lord that reveals the things in us that need to be transformed and changed. It's called sanctification. It's called being conformed to the image of Christ. He searches even our motives. Do you know on the day of judgment, Paul said the way that he preached it in in Romans chapter 2, he says, this is part of my gospel, that on that day, Jesus Christ is going to reveal the secrets of every person. How good it is. How many people are there going to be standing before the judgment seat of Christ that are still full of secrets that nobody knew? But every single one of those is going to be revealed at that moment. That's going to be devastating for some people. Here's the beauty, though, of carrying the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Those things can get revealed now. And they can get taken out and rooted out of us now. I want to tell you, For me, I'm not saying I'm arrived anywhere, but I feel more free in my own heart just being honest about who I am and who I'm not than I ever have in my life. And there's a huge freedom in not having to pretend. It's exhausting to wear a mask all the time. It's exhausting to have to put on an image where people look at you and go, oh, you're awesome or you're the, you know, I always laugh when people say that to me. You're you're awesome. I'm like, compared to what? That's the question. Compared to what? Humility always attracts God. I like what Ann Voskamp says. The water always collects in the lowest places. And if we want the water of God, we go down to the low places and stay there instead of exalting ourselves. The spirit of the fear of the Lord, repentance, worship, where Jesus is seen in his light and his glory. Look at Revelation chapter 4 and 5. What happens there? Everybody's worshiping him. Not only everybody, but every created thing is worshiping him. And in the end of chapter 5, and every creature in heaven, every creature on earth, and every creature under the earth begins to shout in unison, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worship goes to him. Out of the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Overwhelmed all like John had in full surrender. I want to look at Isaiah chapter 6. 
You know, this passage is so powerful. And then I've got a little revival history for you, Mitchell. Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. (laughs) I saw the Lord. Isaiah is no slouch. Isaiah was the most respected prophet in Israel. He prophesied to four different kings. Uzziah reigned for 52 years. Isaiah had been around for a while. He was a reputation as a very incredibly accurate prophet. His writings are quoted more in the New Testament than from any other Old Testament book. He had more prophecies about Jesus Christ and his coming than any other prophet. He was no slouch of small standing. He was a prophet of highest stature in Israel and probably the most holy man in in the whole nation. And he gets caught up into the presence of the Lord. And I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. This is no small temple. This is no nursery rhyme thing. This is a massive temple. What does his train represent? What does the train of a king or the queen of England represent? It represents their majesty. It represents their riches. It it represents their status. It represents the respect that is due to them. And God's majesty is so great. When Isaiah sees him, it fills the entire temple. He's high and lifted up in this massive throne sitting. And this prophet who had spoken the word of the Lord for decades was overwhelmed with awe. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Think about this. You have perfect created beings that were created to worship God. And God's holiness and light is so pure and so powerful that they have to cover their face and their feet in his presence. He's amazingly awesome. His light is overwhelming. His holiness is like a tidal wave. And one called out to the other and said, what else can you say? (laughs) Holy, holy, holy. No, you don't get it. I don't just mean holy. I mean holy, holy, holy. In Hebrew, when you repeat words, it's for emphasis. He's not just holy or holy, holy. This is the only time in Scripture where it's repeated three times. Because God's holiness is so indescribably great that even the perfect created beings that were made to worship in His presence are hiding themselves from that perfect light. The whole earth 
is full of his glory. You know, the interesting thing in John chapter 12, if you, you don't need to look there now, but you can look it up later. Verse 41, John says that Isaiah was talking about Jesus as the one on the throne. He said he spoke of him. This, this is the Jesus that we love and serve. This is why when Jesus comes again in all of his glory and splendor, he's going to judge all of the nations and everyone that was in rebellion against him, he's going to judge and justice is going to be meted out. But his saints, that's you and me, who have known and loved him and worshipped him and sang worship songs and read our Bibles for years and decades, it says that we're going to marvel at him. Our jaw is going to drop and hit the floor. We're going to say, you're 10,000 times greater than I ever imagined. Forgive me for the way that I preached about you in such a small way. You're so amazing. I can't grasp how great you are. We're going to be overwhelmed. His position is that he's the highest. His power is that he is the Lord of angel armies. The Lord of hosts there in verse 3 means he's the Lord of angel armies. Think about his power. In Isaiah chapter 37, Isaiah tells the story of the invasion of Israel when the Assyrians came against them. And one night, God said, don't worry, they're not coming into Jerusalem. He sent out one angel who killed 185,000 of the best soldiers on earth in one night. But he's got myriads and myriads of angels, and they don't compare to his power in Revelation chapter 20, there's a single angel with chain in one hand who comes and grabs Satan with the other hand and binds him with the chain. One angel binds Satan and throws him into the abyss. He's not all that. You think God and the devil are on equal par? Oh, no. It's not a fair fight at all. Come on. He's incredibly powerful. He's perfect in every way. He's perfect light. His purity, well, the foundations, verse 4, of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Imagine the scene. Dude, this prophet, imagine what he was feeling at this moment, actually being in the throne room of God. This is overwhelming. And then I said, Woe is me. The Hebrew there doesn't say I'm ruined. It says, I'm dead. I'm dead. I'm dead. I'm dead. I'm dead. I've seen the king. I've seen the perfect light. I'm dead. That's what it says. Woe is what they said at funerals. And he's like, I'm a dead man. 
because I've seen the perfect light. He thought he was going to die right there. But notice what he says, too, in verse 5. Because I'm a man of unclean lips. Think about who said that. He's the most reputable prophet who spoke the word of God from his mouth over and over again in accurate ways. And the light penetrates to his greatest strength and shows it's flawed. There's stuff in your lips that aren't right. And he's crying out, I've been a prophet by all of these years and decades, and my lips are actually unclean. And I live in the midst of a people with unclean lips. Like, the light reveals everything. But here's the beauty. God didn't send the light to destroy him, even though it could have. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Prophet Isaiah needed to have repentance and get forgiven for his lips being unclean, even though he was the mouthpiece of God on the earth. That's incredible to me. If that's, if that's true of Isaiah, then I know there's things in me exposed to that light. But, but I want my heart's desire and my longing is to know Jesus. And whatever that takes, if that takes, I, I pray this prayer sometimes. Lord, if you, if you need to, whatever you need to do in me, please do it. I just want, I just want to know you and walk with you. Whatever else happened, I just want to know you. I want to really know you. I want to really know you. I know I'm not going to know you until I see you face to face, but there's so much. I just, honestly, folks, I just know, I know that much. I've been a student, a serious student of the Bible for almost 50 years. That's how much I know. That's really true. I'm like, it's the unsearchable riches of Christ. We, we don't ever get there. We don't ever arrive. We don't ever have it. We don't ever know him. If Paul cried out at the end of his life, everything else I've accomplished, it's all done to me. It's nothing. What matters is, I've got to know you. The cry of my heart, I've got to know you. And whatever that takes, reveal yourself to me. Shine your light. Take me into that place and shine your light upon the stuff in me that needs to be purified. Thank God I've been born again. Thank God the Holy Spirit lives in me. Thank God I have a new heart. It's not a stony heart. It's a heart of flesh. But there's still lots of things in me that are dark and need the light to shine on and get revealed. I'm asking the Lord lately, please deal with my motives. Because, you know, on the day of judgment, one of the things that's going to be done there is that he's going to judge the motives for everything that we did. And we're going to give account for that. Like, it's not so much the what as it is the why. 
Like, why did you do that? There's lots of good things that we probably have done where the why wasn't right. And he's like, that, that, that gets burned in the fire, right? The First Corinthians 3 fire where all of our works are piled up and they go through the fire and everything that's not worthy is burned. And we're left with what's not burned. This, this makes me very happy, honestly. It may sound crazy, but I'm so happy that the Lord is willing. We have time. We have breath. We have opportunity to let the light search us. And when we carry the spirit of the fear of the Lord, that's where we're transparent, and that's where Jesus' light can shine through us. I want to share one little tidbit from the first great awakening and one from the second great awakening in this country. First great awakening headed up by a man named Jonathan Edwards in Massachusetts. It was a powerful revival that happened in the 1730s, 40s, 50s. It literally changed the, the whole nation. Here's what Edwards said about his life. He used to ride out into the woods on horseback and pray and seek God. And he spent 13 hours a day in his study studying scripture. Is that insane? And they had 10 kids. That's an amazing woman. Sarah Edwards, an amazing woman. But, but this is the dedication that people in past ages have. Like sometimes we think we're, we're all that and we're super dedicated. But all you have to do is actually look into the lives of other people and you go, actually, I'm not diddly squat. Edward says this, and I love this language. He said, I, I had a view. He's, he's ridden out into the woods on his horseback, and he's, he's praying. He's seeking God. And he used to carry little pieces of colored paper and pins that he would take with him. And when he had a thought that he felt like God gave him or an insight from Scripture, he would pin, he would write a little thing on there and pin it to his clothes. And when he came back, his wife would help him pull off all those little notes and they would write him down so he could remember what the Lord showed him because he didn't have a cell phone. <clears throat> he said, I had a view or a vision that was for me extraordinary of the glory of the Son of God. He appeared indescribably excellent with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and conception. I felt an ardency of soul to be what I know not otherwise how to express, emptied and annihilated to lie in the dust and to be full of Christ alone. I, I love that language. Have you ever had experience with the Lord? Like, I, I, just, I just want to disappear. I just want to be filled with you. Because life, see, this, this is Paul's theology. For me to live is not to preach Christ. It's not to minister Christ. For me to live is Christ. And his whole theology in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 11, he goes on and he's talking about the greatness of Jesus. And then he finally comes down to Christ is all. He's everything. Whenever the church has lived that way with the right center and the right hub, God has done mighty things in the community. Second Great Awakening, Charles G. Finney was one of the leaders. 
he carried the spirit of the fear of the Lord in a powerful way. And if you read his reflections of revival, you can read the stories for yourself. But it is remarkable. And the whole community carried the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And it affected all of the communities around it. It, it literally changed this whole nation. That was the reason that slavery got abolished, was because of the believers in that movement. That was the reason that women got the right to vote, because of the believers in that movement and other social things that got changed because the whole culture changed. When Finney would go into towns, literally the prisons would be emptied and the bars would be emptied and go out of business because so many people there got soundly saved. He's describing one of the meetings that he had. And he said, I had not spoken to them for very long, I think more than a quarter of an hour, when all at once an awful presence seemed to settle down upon them. Me, awful, not meaning bad in this case. It's just awesome. And something flashed over the congregation. The congregation began to fall from their seats as they fell in every direction and cried for mercy. If I had had a sword in each hand, I could not have cut them off their seats as fast as they fell. Indeed, nearly the whole congregation were either on their knees or prostrate in less than two minutes. From this first shock that fell upon them, everybody prayed. Everybody was seeking God. Everybody who was able to speak, that is. He says, a certain man, Mr. Buck, who had no interest in the Lord, came to one of the meetings, apparently through the influence of his Christian wife who nagged him. <clears throat> I added that. Finney describes him as a strong man, very muscular, a man of great strength of will and strength of nerve and physically a proud specimen of humanity. Finney says the, ser the sermon had torn him to pieces. An urgent message was brought to Finney at midnight saying that it was imperative that he visited Mr. Buck's house. Buck was in such a terrible state of mind and under such awful conviction that they felt he could not live unless something was done for him. They thought he was going to die. His wife thinks he's going to die. I heard his moanings, he said, when I approached the house, and perhaps I should almost say howlings before I got near the house. When I entered, I found him sitting on the floor, his wife, I believe, supporting his head, and what, looked, what a look on his face. It was indescribable. I was used to seeing persons under great convictions, but I must confess that his appearance gave me a tremendous shock. He was writhing in agony, grinding his teeth, and literally gnawing his tongue for pain. He cried out to me, Oh, Mr. Finney, I'm lost! I'm a lost soul! And I recollect exclaiming, If this is conviction, what is hell like? Can, can I tell you something? In Finney's revivals, they did research on the converts. Ten years later, 80 to 85% of all the converts were still living their life fully for Jesus. That's phenomenal. Do you know what Billy Graham's own organization says about his meetings? That 20 to 25% remain true. Do you know what the figure is today for stadium evangelism? After one year, checking with everybody that says that they gave their life to Jesus, after one year, 6% are still living for Jesus at all. 
What's the difference? It's the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Because if you come to Jesus because primarily because he's going to fix all your stuff, he's going to bless your finances, he's going to heal your body, which is great. I'm not saying he doesn't do those things. He does do those things. But if you're coming to him for selfish reasons, then that's what you're only going to stay for. And if it starts to get like everything isn't coming your way and all the sun's shining every day, then you're going to turn back to the world. But when you see the perfect light and you see the Son of God for who He is and you see the darkness in your own soul and your own need and your own brokenness and depravity and your need for a Savior and that washes over you and real conviction comes in to where you actually see the state of your soul. We don't today. We flatter converts to coming to Christ and they don't stay because we preach a false gospel to them. And if you preach a false gospel, you get false converts. And they don't stay. The true gospel is, see the Son of God in His glory. And if you see Him, you will bow the knee to Him and surrender your whole life. Just like Isaiah does in this passage. Verse 8. I heard a voice saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here am I. Send me. I belong to you wholeheartedly, lock, stock, barrel, family, children, money, bank account, cars, house, everything that I've got becomes yours. This is the kingdom. When you see the treasure in the field, you go and joyfully sell everything that you have to get it. When you see the pearl of great price, you're happy to give up everything to get it because you have a treasure that is infinitely more valuable than all the junk that you have here that will go to the junkyard or to your kids or to somebody else. You can't keep it. Nobody can pull a trailer behind their hearse at their funeral. You can't take your stuff. Everything that you've got will leave. Naked we came and naked we are going to leave. We're going to leave with our own heart, our own life. And what we actually have of the treasure of Jesus Christ is what we're going to carry. And what we actually have of him in substance is what we can communicate to people around us. We can give them the slogans. We can give them all the promises. We can give them all the perks. We can give them a Jesus teddy bear. We can give them free t-shirts. We can give them all of that stuff. But unless they see. Here's the thing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul describes what conversion is. The one who spoke light into the darkness has spoken into our hearts and revealed the glory of God in the face of Christ to us. And we see Him because the Holy Spirit reveals Him to us. That light has to shine in every heart. And I want to tell you the truth. Wherever there has been a community that has carried that light and been that light, they have been able to impact people because that light shines out of a community that carries the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And the light of Jesus comes into hearts and He's revealed to them and they're never the same again. Because you can't see Him and not bow the knee. You cannot. And when you bow the knee, everything's different. You have a new heart. 
You have a new life. You have a new value system. And you don't care about your stuff. We need a community that carries the spirit of the fear of the Lord. It is the Holy Spirit. It is beautiful. And I want to finish with this in Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 8. You were formerly darkness. You like how he says that? He doesn't say you were formerly were in the darkness. He says formerly you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. There's light now. Walk as children of light. Now this, this, this is one of the reasons why it's not nitpicking, it's not legalism, it's not Phariseeism to want to get all the junk out of our life. It's just when you have so much clutter in there, the light can't shine out and others can't see. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. When the light is reigning inside of us, that's the things that come out of us. Verse 10, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. If we're walking as people in the light, we have to expose. Our light will expose the darkness, not only in us, but in other people. It's not condemnation. It's not a beatdown. It's just that where there's light shining, then things are shown for what they really are. All things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For Listen to this, verse 13. For everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise men. Here's the, here's the beauty of it. Whatever we expose to the Lord... This is always the win. If you have places in your life as a believer where you have been stuck, where you have been ashamed, where you have been caught up in things that you know your conscience tells you that's not, it's not okay. The thing to do with those things, I've learned this over my life, the first thing you do is run to the light. And you expose it to the light. And I don't know how this works. But he said whatever is exposed to the light becomes light. The light is actually purifying in us as believers. If we will take our soul and lay it before the Lord and say, Lord, shine your light on me and everything in me that's not right, come and shine on it. And when we expose that to him, he actually transforms it, takes the darkness out, and he makes light where there once was darkness. I don't know how he does it, but he does do it. And that's the process of becoming Christ-like. And when there's a people that actually carry that kind of light, the people of God, in a community, there is light that shines out of that community that exposes the darkness in unbelievers and lets them actually see the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ so that they can come to Him. One of the biggest hindrances, and we know this, for the unbelieving world 
And coming to Jesus is the hypocrisy and the darkness in the church. And this is not a throwdown. I know people here, you're after Jesus, and I am too. But it's never a wrong time to lay in the light and let the light expose in us whatever the Lord wants to call out and expose. Because the more light we have in us, the more power we have to pierce the darkness that's out there. And there's a lot of darkness out there that we have to pierce. And so, y'all, let's open up the altars. Come down if you want to come down. Let's spend some time in the light and, and seek the Lord.